0: chapter 4 Sunday morning studying the book of Genesis together in a series entitled Gleanings from Genesis if you're with us this morning and uh, you are without a bible just flag one of these guys coming up the aisles right now and uh, they'll put a bible in your hand uh, we always want people to hear the sermon god wants people to hear his teaching but he wants them us to also see it with our own eyes and so a bible uh, helps you to do that If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from God to you today. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Uh, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother, brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. and Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be on him sevenfold, and the Lord shall... And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Uh, We won't get through all of that today, but it gives you a context of the entire account. We'll get through the first five verses. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we are so thankful that when we turn to your book that we uh, need never turn to it alone under the uh, limitations of our own intellect or even our own hunger for you, Uh, but we turn to it uh, with you in communion with your Holy Spirit. We thank you that this is a living book in the hands of the Holy Spirit, and we want this passage to be living to us and our walk with you, Lord. And so we pray that as we continue to worship you now in the study of your word, that you would do something eternal uh, in our hearts and in our spirits through your word this morning. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to us, this church, this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. With chapter 4, we begin God's account of human history beyond uh, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve having been expelled from the garden in the last verse or two of, of chapter three. And the book of Genesis, uh, and I think indeed the rest of the Bible, is very, very much a, a history book. It is a record of past events, and, uh, but I think it's also important to understand the Supreme Lake. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit in order not to provide us with a military history of mankind, uh, a political history of mankind, or a scientific, or a uh, social, or a cultural history of mankind. Uh, The Bible hasn't been provided to us by God in order to Uh, give us a detailed record of the advancement of civilization from its beginning all the way to uh, our age. The Bible is written in order to provide us with uh, the most important history that we can be provided with, and that is a spiritual history. And as a result, the book is all about Jesus, and uh, in the Old Testament, looking forward to his coming, uh, under the new covenant in the New Testament, looking back upon his first coming and, and looking forward to the rapture and his second coming. It's for this reason that the history recorded for us in the book of Genesis, it moves right along, <laughs> very, very quickly, uh, to the appearance of Abram, or we know him more uh, familiar, familiarly as Abraham, Uh, as he appears in the account in Genesis chapter uh, 11. And then with Abraham, we have the introduction of the bloodline through which God is going to bring uh, his Messiah that he has promised, his Savior, uh, into the world, into human history. But uh, between chapter 4 and chapter 11, when that great event occurs and we get introduced to Abraham, Uh, There are significant events in human history that God says, I I want you to be aware of of these things as a part of a a spiritual history. And it includes the flood in Noah's day, which we'll be looking at in coming weeks. Also the Tower of Babel, which we'll look at after that. And then here this morning, the Holy Spirit's account of Cain and Abel. Concerning the birth of Cain and Abel, we're told here in verses 1 and 2, we're told that Adam uh, knew his wife. The word knew or know in the scriptures, uh, it, it's uh, in, in this kind of a context, the word know or knew is commonly used to describe sexual activity between a husband uh, and a wife. And, uh, and in the coarseness of, of our age today where uh, everything is said, almost everything with uh, the, in the most vulgar terms, uh, no discretion at all. It is, it's refreshing to, uh, to turn to the Bible and, and uh, see how it handles uh, these things in, in such a discretionary way in describing it. We're told that Eve conceived and that she bore Cain in verse one. Cain was the first child ever born. Adam and Eve, they were uh, created and uh from the Earth, and she, from his side and uh, but Cain is the first baby born in human history, and so you just picture it in your mind here you have Adam and Eve and um and, and uh, before Cain is born, they 're the only two human beings on the earth that 's a lot of space that 's a lot of room, and no iPhones, no t v no I mean it's just them and this big wide world that they're in the middle of. And, and then now with the birth of Cain, now we've gone from two uh, to three. Uh, Eve's excitement is, uh, concerning the birth of Cain is recorded for us here and uh, certainly uh, expressed in her naming of him. The name Cain means to get, uh, or gotten, in other words, as she expressed uh, further, she recognized Cain to be a gift from the Lord. And the Bible teaches that children are the heritage of the Lord; they are a gift uh, from God, more or less. Uh, but it's uh, certain times more, it's certain times less. But they really are uh, a blessing from uh, from God, and. Um, and so, but there's more than that that's involved with, with Eve here. I, I don't think it's unlikely that she believed that in naming Cain uh, to get or or gotten from the Lord that... Uh, she viewed him to be the fulfillment of God's promise in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, that he would be the one who uh, would be born, who would ultimately bruise, that is, crush Satan's head, his authority, uh, as, as that promise was, uh, as that was spoken to Satan in the in the hearing of, of Adam and Eve, and spoken to Satan for his part in, in their fall in, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, personally i don 't doubt that that, that uh, one uh, person in all of human history has been more eager uh, for Satan to pay uh, a terrible price for his part in the fall uh, than Eve. She was the one that fell prey uh, to the temptation and then tempted her. Her husband. And so, up to this point in, in human history, Adam and Eve become the first people ever to raise Cain. And uh, uh, this is why I don't tell jokes, but this was irresistible to me because I have such poor taste um, uh, uh, in them. I hope you don't think less of me. Well, you should, actually. <laughs> so, 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 there's an awful lot of excitement. Uh, that surrounds the the birth of this child and and anticipation related to his birth. And yet, as we see the account unfold, even beyond what we've read, Cain is going to become a terrible, terrible heartbreak uh, to Adam uh, and and Eve and uh, and to the entire family. So here he is. He's born uh, of the same gene pool uh, of his soon-to-be brother, uh, Abel, and uh, raised in the same uh, environment under the same nurture and admonition of the Lord under, under Adam and Eve, and uh, through no fault of his parents at all, in fact, it, it, was, uh, it, it was in the face of everything that they taught him, he became uh, what he became, which is an con- absolute d- disaster. And, of course, this goes on continually even in, into our day and uh, to the heartbreak of uh, godly parents uh, all around the world today and right into this room today, and it's as old as Cain and Abel. We raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We give them that as a gift. We give it to them, at, uh, in many cases, a tremendous sacrifice on our part to impart that kind of a foundation and heritage uh, into their life. And uh, we give all of that to them, but we also give that to God for him to be able to use in their lives for the rest of their lives. But what a child then chooses to do with that blessing is completely out of our control. Uh, We can pray for them, but we have no ultimate control over any other human being uh, than, than ourselves. And so, interesting you see in the Old Testament where you would see the, so often a good king would be followed by an evil son and an evil king followed by a good son and a good king. And uh, this this uh, freedom of choice that's involved in in all of it. And, and so we are uh, left with, not in the sense of a last resort or uh, left with something that's powerless, left with prayer. Uh, I think that Sometimes you can look at it, and I don't think we would consider it as Christian parents. You know what a waste—certainly uh, not a waste in terms of our effort and what we put into our children's uh, life. But certainly we can see them wasting it at times. And but but think about the uh, what, how miserable it would be to have a child like Cain that uh, that goes sideways as they do. And then uh, the confidence that we have, really, to know, Lord, I raised them in you. I I gave you everything you asked for of me, the best that I, I wasn't perfect, but to the best of my ability, I gave them what you asked for in terms of building it in, in their life. And then now it's up to you to make much of it. in in returning them to this. And there's a confidence there that we wouldn't otherwise have if we hadn't raised them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But uh, not to say that if you come to the Lord later in life and the children are are grown and and, uh, you didn't have a chance to do that and now all is lost, the Lord knows how to look at every situation uh, specifically even bore a second son, uh, Abel in verse two, his name means frail. Uh, It means breath or or vapor. uh, It appears that at this point, Adam and Eve now realize that Uh, God is not going to fulfill the uh, the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 uh, immediately, and uh, perhaps uh, as she thinks about life uh, that she's living now in comparison to the life that they once enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, that she encapsulates this life by comparison with a single word vanity. Now, now, remember, in, in all of human history, only Adam and Eve experience the perfection of the Garden of Eden. And uh, the rest of us, we know nothing about that. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I'm almost happy uh, that, we, that I don't. At least I'll speak for myself. All I've ever known, all we've ever known is fallenness. Uh, the fallenness of this world—we have no basis of comparison. That that complication isn't added to our thinking, or to our feeling, or to our emotions, or our regret, or anything in in, in terms of uh, of life. And and for all of the difficulty of fallenness, that has brought into our lives, we're not tortured by that comparison. And uh, imagine being Adam and Eve living in this fallen world and then knowing how good it was uh, in, in that garden. I think sometimes we can uh, joke a little bit about, you know, one day seeing Adam and Eve in heaven as Christians, and uh, wanting them to, you know, to maybe poke them in the eye or uh, poke them in the ribs for whatever, you know, uh, they, they've done. And we can kid about that uh, uh, for the mess that they created. But I, I do think that they paid a very, very significant private price uh, for that fall, all of their lives. The occupations of Cain and Abel are given to us here in uh, end of verse two, Abel raised and he tended sheep. So he was a shepherd and uh, Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. It's important to realize here that uh, no one is superior uh, to the other in terms of an occupation. Now the farmer may think he's superior to the rancher. And the rancher may consider himself uh, superior to the farmer. But in God's eyes, there's nothing like that. I remember when I worked for the phone company, and, <clears throat> and uh, I was a lineman at the time, and we were putting in some kind of a cable or a CR wire or something to some ranch way up in the hills somewhere. And uh, and my buddy, who was my partner, uh, we got there and we began to talk with him and my partner uh, told him, uh, complimented him on the nice farm that he had. Oh, he bristled and let him know in no uncertain terms, this is not a farm, this is a ranch. So apparently there's some tension between ranchers and farmers that uh, we're not aware of as we just buy the product of, of what they, both of them produce at the supermarkets, but Uh, But in terms of how they're esteemed by God, it had nothing to do with the occupation. You notice in verse three through five the, the offerings that they they brought to the Lord. They each brought an offering to the Lord. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground uh, to the Lord. So he brought some kind of an offering that was, uh, constituted grain or vegetables. And then Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of the flock and, uh, and the, uh, of their fat. So he didn't bring uh, God some, uh, you know, uh, awful creature that he didn't want, he brought his best animal and, uh, and, and brought the, the best part as a, a sacrifice and, uh, and offering that animal sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord's response to their offerings given to us there in verse 4 and 5, God rejected, or rather he respected Abel and his animal sacrifice, and he did not respect Cain and uh, his grain offering. Or his vegetable offering. And uh, uh, this term did not respect. It's very, very uh, graphic in the original language in the Hebrew. Uh, Literally means he wouldn't even look at it. Uh, He wouldn't even look at the offering that Cain uh, brought to him. Now, I think when you, if you're reading this passage for the first time or maybe the 50th time and, uh, and you don't understand certain aspects about how to properly understand it, uh, it can be a lot of confusion here about why God responds the way that, that he does. And so it's vital to understand what's happening here in God's eyes as it's revealed to us in other places in Scripture. Otherwise, it makes it look like God is just uh, arbitrary. God is just unreasonable. And... uh but, uh, and, and uh, that they had taken and brought their best, and God just out of the blue accepted the one and re- rejected the, the other. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, God had given Cain and Abel very clear instruction about what kind of a sacrifice he would accept and he would not accept Uh, Otherwise, uh, we would wrongly conclude that God only accepts animal sacrifices and he doesn't accept grain sacrifices, but under the law of Moses, he accepted both. He accepted both animal sacrifices more than accepted, he demanded them and then accepted when they were given, animal sacrifices and uh, grain offerings. The Holy Spirit's uh, commentary on this uh, passage here Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 really uh, comes to our rescue. It's invaluable for us. And, And you might write it in your margin if you're prone to do that. So next time you read it, you can know the New Testament context. Hebrews chapter 11, verse four, where we're told, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts and uh, through it, he being dead still speaks. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, Abel is commended for his faith and uh, commended for a faith that uh, he demonstrated in offering an animal sacrifice. And so the sacrifice that he offered is not the primary issue here. Uh, The issue is, is that he offered the sacrifice uh, in faith. One of the fascinating things to understand about Hebrews chapter 11, in order to unpack the verse that helps us to understand uh, the passage that we're looking at here this morning, is that in Hebrews chapter 11, that great, great chapter on uh, the hall of faith, all of these great heroes from the Old Testament uh, that were heroes of the faith faith uh, was never demonstrated on their part by guessing what the will of god was and uh, and then doing that in some kind of a blind faith in every single instance in the hall of faith uh, faith was demonstrated by knowing ahead of time what the will of god was uh, in a given situation, what they were to do in that situation, and and in knowing that what God's will was, the faith side of it was, and then being willing to obey God's will at whatever the cost, or in the face of whatever circumstances would oppose obeying what He commanded them to do in that circumstance. Evidently, God made it very clear to both Cain and Abel what kind of sacrifice was to be offered to him in this instance, how he wanted to be approached in uh, in this instance, and, and and that he was to be approached in worship on the basis of an animal sacrifice. And as God would later formalize in the law of Moses, uh, the, the whole offerings, uh, the, the whole, all the various offerings that were to be made and, and all of it a picture and a type of Jesus, the seed of the woman, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Personally, and that's a qualifying statement, personally, I think that Adam and Eve, after God uh, sacrificed uh, what is presumably a, a couple of lambs, in order following their sin in order to cover not only their physical nakedness uh, and to clothe them with those skins but also to cover their spiritual uh, nakedness that uh, at that point uh, that uh, Adam and Eve began to offer some kind of a similar sacrifice to God. Uh, from the beginning, long before it was ever formalized in the law of Moses, we will see uh, sacrifices being offered to God, and that all of this had been a part of Cain and Abel's uh, spiritual, spiritual heritage. You know, so often we look at, because we're so dominated by <clears throat> the, the, uh, the idea or the theory of evolution that's so prominent within, within our culture, that um, we, we think of man and we think of religion and its development within mankind that somehow uh, in the very earliest history of mankind that it was very kind of uh, primitive and people were kind of groping after God. They, they really didn't have a good understanding of him. They didn't know how to approach him. They didn't know how to have a relationship with him. And so like all other areas of maybe civilization or whatever, this has been a a progressive growth until we have kind of these refined, advanced uh, religions that are in the world today, including Christianity. But the fact of the matter is, is that from the very beginning it was pure, from the very beginning, I mean, you, you, don't know, you can't know God better than Adam and Eve knew God. Uh, you can't have revelation from him. I mean, it certainly, subsequently when the Bible, we got the Bible, certainly, but it, it wasn't a progression from some lesser thing uh, to a greater thing in terms of, uh, of religion and, and expressing a relationship with God. It began as something great. And then all of this other craziness of people sacrificing their children to, uh, you know, uh, to Mammon and and all of these other horrible expressions of uh, uh, under Baal and and Dagon and false gods of the uh, of the Old Testament and then false gods that are expressed today, all of that is developed in the face of. A, a, a purity that existed from the beginning. Now, in terms of Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve, but Cain and Abel, in terms of uh, Cain being responsible for a failure to bring the proper uh, sacrifice to God, Uh, being clear. It's not only made clear to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, but the very context of the passage reveals uh, it to us as well. You uh, notice down in verse uh, 6 and 7, Cain became very angry with God over his rejection uh, of his offering, and then God rebuked him Declaring there in verse six, he said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God, you notice, did not rebuke Cain because Cain guessed that God wanted vegetables for a sacrifice. And he guessed wrong. Uh, God was rebuking Cain over a failure to do well. And uh, to do what was right. He was rebuking him for knowing what well was and then refusing to do it. So it isn't that that God likes ranchers more than farmers. It it is that uh, one of these men obeyed God and the other uh, deliberately disobeyed him. Now, here in in chapter four, we have the division of mankind now into kind of two streams, into two two camps. And you have those who, like Abel, uh, approach God on his terms. And the terms by which God is approached from the very beginning is on the basis of faith, as very, very simple as you look at uh, the life of Abel and his relationship with God. God told Abel what he wanted and how he was to be approached, what would please him in this regard, and Abel simply obeyed God, and God accepted him. And that is, is, is what we're called to do with Jesus. We have been told by God that he can only be, be approached through Christ, and as Jesus said In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. This is known as clarity in uh, on the most important issue that anyone will uh, address in life and and as the bible teaches if we will obey god by uh, believing in jesus christ receiving him into our lives that we'll be born again for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As Jesus said about how to receive this salvation. And when we do receive that salvation, trusting in Jesus, then we are accepted by God. John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, that is uh, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in in his name. So all salvation is on the basis of faith. And here you have Cain, I mean, Abel, very, very simple relationship with God, a very, very simple uh, stream of mankind in, in, in this uh, vein. And then you've got those who are of Cain, who disregard God's instructions and uh, his, his word about how he's to be approached A by sinful man. And uh, Cain and those that are of kind of his lineage, spiritually speaking, uh, they disobey God, they rebel against God, and they are determined to approach God on their own terms. And they will just approach God any old way that they choose, and God will just have to be happy with that. And uh, then they become upset and they become angry when they're informed that approaching God in that way is not acceptable uh, to him. And not only will God not accept it as with Cain, he won't even look at it. He won't even acknowledge that kind of a, an approach in the same way that he did not acknowledge Cain's uh, self-righteous offering do you know how God uh, views our righteousnesses, our self-righteousness? It's quite a verse that's found in the book of Isaiah. And the first time you read it as a Christian, it's a real eye opener. I mean, it becomes one that you never forget in terms of becoming a guard against ever thinking we can approach God on the basis of our own uh, goodnesses. And and so how does God view our attempts to making ourselves right or acceptable uh, to God on the basis of our own works or human effort? And uh, the Bible says that God considers them uh, to be filthy rags, uh, completely unholy, completely unclean in his sight. And the verse is Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses, uh, that's not our failures. That's us at our best. And all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And that's how he views any attempt even the best attempt of man in order to uh, believe in our hearts and minds that we can ready ourselves and and qualify ourselves for a relationship with God or to one day stand uh, before him. Now, some people have a problem with these kind of things. I certainly don't. uh, I live with some level of self-awareness in life and i'm even more aware of people who are around me in life and i don't look at any of us myself included and say ah yes we are qualified on some level to make ourselves acceptable to a perfect and a righteous and a holy uh, god and uh, and and but this is how he views our best in order for a person to, like Cain, to determine that we can approach God on our own terms, that we can approach God in the way that we choose or the means of our own devising, to to to, uh, to approach God in life, and this is not some abstract thing. People do this all of the time, and they will do it all over the world today. They say, "I'm going to come to God uh, how I choose." And he's just going to have to be happy with that. Uh, he's just going to have to I- accept that. And, and when a person has that kind of an attitude in, in their heart, that kind of a, a belief, they possess two things at once. Number one, a very high view of themselves. And in fact, an astonishing level of pride and and, uh, arrogance and and self-importance. And the second thing that such a person has to possess is a very, very low view of God. And this is the exact opposite of what is uh, uh, involved and required in approaching God. What's required there is to have a very high view of God and a very low view of ourselves. Someone might protest and say, how could I have a low view of myself I'm Mr. Wonderful. Uh, no, you're not. We can bring witnesses in. Uh, as the old uh, saying is, is that uh, humility is, is not a complicated thing in life. Uh, humility is made up of two things, and that is honesty and a good memory. And that's the truth about it. Every one of us uh, has plenty in our history Uh, that if we would stop and think about it once in a while, gives us plenty of cause for humility within within our lives and a recognition that there is quite a gap between us and God, and there ought to be if he is uh, nothing like us and we want him to be nothing like us. Now, God simply will not accept anyone approaching him on the basis of anything or anyone other than a faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of uh, sins. He will not accept being approached on the basis of anything else than a faith in his son for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And I think that in the pride and the arrogance and the self, sense of self-importance that really marks mankind in our age, this cannot be stressed enough. And if you are not a Christian yet, it is so vital that you know that you must approach God on his terms. You must worship God on his terms and not uh, your own. The gap that exists between you and God in any area of your life, in terms of intellect, in terms of strength, in terms of wisdom, in terms of knowledge, that gap is infinite in size. You are simply unqualified to be in the driver's seat in a relationship with God. And if you are in the driver's seat in a relationship with God, then you view God as something less than yourselves and why would you worship a God that you esteem to be less than yourselves? None of us are qualified to be the lead or to lay down the conditions of a relationship uh, with God. It is a privilege to know God. It's a privilege to have a relationship with him. And it is a marvel that really that he is interested in us at all and, and more of a marvel that he has made provision for salvation for us in the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son, of Jesus Christ. And it, it's with a sense of, as it, it, it uh, the, the prophet had when he approached God, A a godly man, a a, a righteous man in terms of desiring to walk with God. It's with the sense of, woe is me, for I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's with that attitude that we are to approach God. That we are people of unclean lips, and we dwell among a people of unclean lips. And have no ability in and of ourselves to approach God. The fact of the matter is is that God should be feared until we end our rebellion against him by putting our trust in his son. He's not uh, 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 this uh, jolly uh, Pillsbury doughboy in heaven that we poke in the stomach with a good work once in a while and he giggles for us. Uh, He should be feared. Uh, until our issue of sin has been taken care of by putting our faith in his son. And, I, and, 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 and all of this is in a wonderful and I think needed contrast to the casualness with which people view God today, view Christianity today, view Jesus uh, today. And the, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews comes to our rescue. And the strength of that, that letter In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of his covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So here we live in the context of an insane asylum. It's called Planet Earth. And we're in a very deep cell within that insane asylum, and it's called the United States of America. And there's a deeper cell yet. It's called California. Uh, It it could be worse. We could be on the coast. Uh, But we're not. But but we're so used to being in this context of how God is viewed, how Christianity is viewed, how Jesus is viewed, that once in a while, and, and how a rejection of him or dismissal of him, how casually it is viewed. And once in a while we need to read from the word of God how those very things that are done so casually by the people that we are around, how that very thing is viewed from the holiness of heaven. Because that's where all of us are headed one day, either to be saved or to be judged at the the white throne uh, judgment uh, of Christ. And then there's the warning to anyone who would despise the the salvation that's found in Jesus. Again, in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is to face him one day independent of, of Jesus's covering and his sacrifice and, uh, and, and one day, imagine this imagine this to one day stand before him as a mere human being and to stand before him as a part of his creation and say, I rejected your son. And you want to see arrogance and self-importance and pride exposed in a moment as, a, as misguided in terms of what to do with Christ, or it'll be exposed in, in that moment. And that to stand before him, having rejected his son, and then to stand before him with this confidence that, that in my own works and in the life that I have lived, that I've now qualified myself. Uh, to, uh, to stand in his presence just as I am. Jesus' uh, warning is no less strong. Jesus said, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, speaking of God the Father, who after he has killed has c- power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. But then the fear of God is this kind of quaint, misguided, a uh, uh, historical thing that we've been involved with in in mankind, and in the sophistication of the age, we've moved uh, past all of that. And of course, look at the disastrous consequences all around us. But keep throwing money at it till you run out of money, but it's not going to work. Cain has something here to speak, not only to the lost, to the saved, uh, unsaved that are determined to approach God on our own human effort and works. But he has something very important to speak to the religious man as well. It's important to notice that Cain was no atheist uh, at all. He believed in God. Important to notice that he had a desire to worship God, uh, a desire for a relationship with with God. And uh, there was a spiritual side to him. And I have absolutely no doubt that his offering that he brought to the Lord in terms of grain and fruit was beautiful, Uh, as beautiful as he could put together from from his area of, of expertise and his strengths in his life and all. And Cain even worshiped the right God. Not everybody's that close. He worshiped the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He worshiped the God of the Bible. But he he did so in the wrong way. And this is a classic case, the most tragic case of of close but no cigar. The right God must also be worshipped in the right way. But all of this was uh, 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 self-conceived, self-determined. These were all his ideas. It was not how God had commanded that he was to be uh, approached. Let me read another passage to you from... First um, John chapter 5. He who believes in the Son has witness in himself. He who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. And again, he who has the Son has life and he who does not uh, have the Son of God does not have life. And it was to an an extraordinarily religious man, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, that Jesus spoke the most famous words in the Bible on salvation to. Uh, In other words, if, if religion alone could one day make us acceptable on the path of religion acceptable before God, Jesus would have never said what he said to Nicodemus, as recorded in in John chapter 3. And and Jesus said to him, he said, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he shall not see the kingdom uh, of God. And Nicodemus, he's confused uh, by this born again And he poses the question, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's working on it. He's trying to figure out what a being born again might look like, as grotesque as that might be in his mind. And Jesus let him know this is a spiritual birth, not a second physical birth. Jesus and said, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In order to be saved, it requires a spiritual birth. And Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus exactly how that happens in the verse that I quoted earlier, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's you, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting uh, life. And uh, that is the way to be saved. And understanding this is so important because the overwhelming majority of people in this world are religious. And the overwhelming majority of people in the world will not enter into hell one day on the path of sex, drugs, and rock and roll or atheism or secularism. But they will enter it rather on the path of some Christless religion based upon the false idea that somehow I can live a life that is good enough for me to then merit a relationship with God and then to enter into heaven. And this fills the world. There are billions of people who are on the path walking the way of Cain. And Cain, I think, has something to speak also to us as, as Christians, carnal Christians as well, the person who claims to be a Christian, who, like Cain, knows God is real, uh, has a long history with God, but who's determined to live their Christian life just exactly as they please. And no longer endeavoring to live the Christianity that's described in the Bible, the Christianity that Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day to provide uh, to us, but to settle into this self-determined, self-defined Christianity of my own making. And now I will only take serious... Uh, what I want to take serious of God's commandments, and then I will simply disregard the all the rest of them. I'm going to live my Christian life on my own terms, and God just darn well ought to be uh, better be happy uh, with it. And it's a complete affront uh, to God. And yet I have the temptation in my heart to do that very thing. And I need passages like this and other passages in the Bible to keep me from falling asleep in my Christian life, to keep me growing in my Christian life and to keep me from settling into what is a temptation of all of us and that is to settle into a Christianity that if we were to put it up against the scripture it would look nothing like that but it's the one that I have put together and the one that I find myself in the middle of and it's the way of Cain. We aren't left to guess really what Jesus keep, uh, thinks of this kind of thing because he spoke candidly about it in his letter to the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. Let close with this. And to the angel of the church, as Jesus uh, 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 spoke, to, this was to be written by John, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. And so then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, this is known as clarity. I counsel you to buy uh, from me "'Gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, "'and white garments, that you may be clothed, "'that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, "'and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. "'As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. "'Therefore, be zealous and repent. "'And behold, I stand at the door and knock, "'and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, "'I will come into him.'" and dine with him, and he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That letter of Jesus to the church of Laodicea, which is contemporary today uh, in in speaking to our hearts and, and even to us is a church, it's a very, very strong rebuke. It contains a very, very strong warning. But it isn't just a rebuke. It contains the rebuke, following the rebuke, it is an invitation to come out of that condition and to come out of what they had redefined Christianity to be. One of the, the great evidences that I am under a, a, a self-defined uh, Christianity and have settled into that is number one lukewarmness, and then number two the loss of zeal for God for the things of God for God's call uh, uh, upon my life, and Jesus extends that invitation that and 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 I have no I am not accusing anyone in this room I'm not even accusing one person in this room, let alone five people in this room or us as a church. I'm just saying, under the weight of the catastrophe of Cain's life to just stop and look and ask where it is needed in our lives. If we've settled into lukewarmness and following the example of Cain in a relationship with God, the importance then of hearing Jesus' warning, and then receiving his invitation to come out of it, and not to leave this building or these church grounds until a great exchange occurs to where I am no longer in the driver's seat of my Christian life, no matter how long I've been in that driver's seat, whether for 20 years or for one week, but that he is returned to that place, and I take my proper place in that relationship for my own good and for the good of everyone else. Jude makes a a, a mention of Cain in his short epistle, and he says in Jude verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain have uh, run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. That's a, a triunity you don't want to be a part of if you know anything about the Old Testament. But he phrases it, for they have gone in the way of Cain. And very simply, the way of Cain refers to any attempt to God, uh, come to God through our own effort or man-made Ideas. And as we'll see next time, it ends in an absolute disaster this side of eternity. It's even worse on the other side uh, of eternity. And so there's just a simple question this morning the privacy of our hearts. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And and then uh, trusted in him, received then the Holy Spirit into your life, that magnificent spiritual birth that, that occurs. And, and here you have, once again for the third time in the sermon, here is God's invitation to you about the single most important decision you will make in your life. Every other decision, all of the decisions you have made in your life up to this point, all of them put together will not have the impact that this one does, and that is what you do with Jesus Christ in terms of being qualified to one day stand before God and to enter into heaven. Again, Jesus speaking, for God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you've never done that, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God and to get off of the path of Cain and to get onto the path of Abel, both of which we'll explore a little more fully next time. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, in some respects we have, and trust under the direction of your Holy Spirit, left the 99 to go after the one who is unsaved this morning or the one who is engaged in, whether that's a secular vantage point or whether from a religious background, and then, Lord, to go after the one or whatever the number might be who has settled into the church of Laodicea when the glory of the church of Philadelphia sits there for all of us. So we commit this time, this examination of Cain to you and your Holy Spirit and to its continued work as necessary in each one of our lives here this morning. We pray that your word would be living, And we pray that your Holy Spirit would cause it to be unceasing in our lives until every single vestige of anything that has to do with Cain is removed from our lives this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.